Mira, Mira, on my iPhone, who's the one FaceTiming me? Mackenzie, it's time for our podcast. Stay tuned! Good day, and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling and animation and cutting out people's hearts and putting them in boxes. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We're going to start part one of our multiple episode, though not in a row, but multiple episode series as we cover the Disney canon from different points in history. It's a recurring podcast theme, like a recurring nightmare, except for your ears. <laughs> I think that should be our tagline on, on the Apple Podcast Store. It's like a recurring nightmare for your ears. <laughs> I, would, I, I think whichever of our fans, if ever any one of you wants to give us the Apple iTunes review, it's like a recurring nightmare for your ears. Um, we will send you something nice <laughs> through email. Well, now we have to, what uh, through email? Okay, not physically nice, like a nice one-line email comment. Like we will, we'll, you will, it will be nice. It might be an atta- there might be an attachment. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> Maybe saying. Maybe a gift. <laughs> we'll call you out on Twitter. Yeah, we'll give you a Twitter call out. So let us know if, if you have to join Twitter for that. Sorry. Anyway, so we're talking about where it all began. This is part one. We, we want to see. Disney animated feature-length films, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And right now, especially with Disney's resurgence yet again, and their yeah. just complete success, sometimes it feels like this is the default, that this has always been the thing, that Disney's mm-hmm. always been the best, Disney's always been on top, and Disney, there's always been a Disney full-length animated feature. And that's not the case. There was a point where it was new and it was different and they were struggling and it was uh, they were unsure of themselves. And we just wanted to start there. And I figure if we're going to look at the Disney canon, which we will, we won't look at every single film, but we'll look at different periods. I think it's good to start where where it all started. Yes, it's... Um as I was rewatching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for our homework, um, I was trying to approach it from a perspective of if I'd never seen an animation, an animated movie before, like what were my thoughts? How is this different? How is this new? Because I've watched it before for myself, but never from the point of view of like, what, what is this? And especially as an audience, because in 1937, because so if we use the Wayback Machine, to go back to 1937, which is, my gosh, how long ago? Is that, is that 80? 80 years. Dear goodness. Yeah. So if we go back 80 years to look at what was different in the world 80 years ago, and we think of it as an audience member, animation in 1937 wasn't what it is now. It wasn't technologically advanced. The storytelling in it wasn't advanced. Um, the character development w- wasn't exceptional. There, <laughs> It was animated shorts and silliness and jokes and gags, and that's about it. Cartoons while not being expressly for children at that point, it was a family feature for anybody. So it could be, it's just for the generic all audiences. So when we say rated G for general audiences, yeah, it's pretty much general for anybody. So It's a good time. I mean, it's historically an interesting moment not just for animation for obvious reasons but for film also um 
and it, I don't want to say that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is the first animated film. It wasn't. There were other animated films from throughout the world. None of them worth noting. Mm-hmm. We'll say that. This is the first one of note. And I was like doing some quick research. I think it's the first one in color, or at least Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's new. Hey, not just animated film, but it's an animated film in color. What? That's mind-blowing to audiences. We're going to see this movie in color? Yeah, we and we honestly take a lot for granted on on this. I mean, when we look at something like Moana or Frozen, <laughs> you know, we see these things that are epic in scale. And when we go back then, if I think if we went back, and I, I've often thought of doing this, like what would happen to Walt Disney's brain if we took Beauty and the Beast? And Frozen, just put them in a suitcase, not not Walt Disney, the movies. If we put the movies in a suitcase, got in a DeLorean, traveled back in time and said, hey, Mr. Disney, I got something I want to show you, and showed him Beauty and the Beast and Frozen, what would happen to his brain? Would he be able to handle it? Or what would happen if we showed him Dinosaur? Right. <laughs> Well, I know he wouldn't be able to handle that, so... <laughs> no one could. It was a movie both before and after its time. Oh. Somehow. <laughs> but um, but it's, uh, it's a question on what would that do? Because the, the interesting thing about Walt Disney as a person and what he was trying to do with his studio at the time and in terms of animation... In a lot of ways, he was a lot like Steve Jobs mm -hmm. because Steve Jobs was talking about Apple as the intersection between technology and the liberal arts and where those two worlds meet. And Walt Disney never strayed from technology. He was very quick to jump onto technology and push technology and make it further to be able to express something artistically. The technology was there for artistic expression, and it, it was always the two going together. So I think if Walt Disney had been around for computer graphics, he would have jumped on that probably sooner than anybody. So I mm -hmm. think Disney probably would have gone to CGI long before Chicken Little. I think if, if Walt had been around and who knows how that would have turned out probably uh, questionably, but <laughs> he would have jumped on it, which would have meant that other people would have jumped on it, which would have meant that it would have been pushed further faster. Yes. I'll agree to that. So something like the beautiful paper man, which is, is just gorgeous technology wise, story wise, art wise, Something like that may have happened 10 years earlier. And, you know, Moana and the water and everything, that may have happened 10 years earlier. So it just would have changed the timeline. And I don't know if the world would have been ready for that, but... You're saying Shrek 1 would look good? <laughs> uh, <laughs> look! I, look, I look good. good. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Shrek. We're would, not, we're not opening up that podcast argument again. Yes. But. Yes. Shrek <laughs> would have looked good, but I, but that's something that I think that a lot of times people are reticent to push the technology because they found something that works, uh, whether it's an artistic expression or whether it's a way of doing things. They're fine. We found the formula. It's making the money. We're good. And I don't think Walt Disney ever got into that line of thinking that we found the formula, we got it, it's good, let's not change it. Well, one thing that really hit me watching some featurettes about Snow White um, in preparation for this, I was watching some archival like interview footage and it never really hit me and they said something. I was like, oh, that's completely right. And it was Walt Disney talking about how he was organizing a studio and this big animation cluster and this is something that hadn't existed before and i was like oh you're right you're trying to figure out how to make this thing with never having any processes to make it before you don't know how many 
hundreds of animators you need, how many sound people, like the marketing people. Like you don't have building <laughs> and structure for this. This is completely new and you kind of like winged it. It went from like, <laughs> like what, like a dozen people to like hundreds of people yeah. in a couple of years. Exactly. <laughs> we can do this with dozens of people. Oh, Walt. <laughs> well, this is what's funny about it. So a lot of the, the movie making people called this Disney's folly when he announced that he was going to make an animated feature film. Like, that's just really dumb because people can't invest more than an hour of their time to pictures, to silly pictures moving on a screen. Like, and the thing is, it's like drawings and no art is good enough to withstand someone's attention and emotion for for that long. They're like, maybe seven minutes of your silliness and that's enough. But that's just really naive and dumb to think that you could hold an audience's attention for longer than seven minutes with animated characters. But you know what? That's an attitude that still persists today as we get into the debate of is animation a medium or a genre? Because you'll see many places that list it as a genre. You're exactly right. Which Brad Bird and this podcast says <laughs> it is not a genre. It is an art form. It is a medium. These two things are equal in uh, weight in cultural society. Brad Bird's opinion and writers get animated's opinion. I, f I just figured that people would want to know that we and Brad Bird agree on something. <laughs> Not that we disagree. I can't think of a thing I disagree with Brad Bird on. Maybe I just don't know Brad Bird well enough. Yeah. Brad Bird, if you're listening, we should get coffee. And just talk about the things we disagree on. <laughs> where, where are we outside of the Brad Bird writers get animated Venn diagram? Where does it stop? Um, <laughs> But looking at how we created this, um, they started work for this movie that came out in 1937. They started work in 1934. And this was the only thing that the studio was working on, really. They stopped everything else to work on this. That means money coming in was only for Snow White. And so... Um, Disney originally thought that he would be able to create the film for $250,000, which if I that think- That was a lot back then. It was a lot. And he was going through essentially the math. It's like, well, if it takes this many people this long to do this animated short and scale up, you know, that's, that's all you have to do. Yeah, we could probably do this for 250000 but what ended up happening is he had to mortgage his house and the total budget for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs ran to, and this is 1937, it ran to $1.4 million. And this is after the market crash in the Great Depression. Keep that in mind. 1937, <laughs> $1.4 million. If I know people today who would, if they had $1.4 million budget on their film, could make a beautiful, wonderful, independent film. But, but back then, like, that's just exorbitant. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's unheard I mean, of. You really have to look at this in, I think the good, like, modern equivalent for people our age um, is Toy Story. Toy Story is, like, the closest modern equivalent to what Snow White was. It was like the first good feature length version of what it was and organized under a completely new model of how to make it um, with no real, like there was a vision at the beginning of what the final product would be, but like all the, in the middle and the budget. And that was just all a mystery. Right. And I think that's the reason that both of these two films, Snow White and Toy Story are the only two animated films on the American film Institute top 100 list. Mm -hmm. I think they're on there for technology and like cultural reasons, not for like story reasons. I mean, I think Toy Story probably the argument can be made that it's in the top 100 films story wise ever told Snow White. Uh, I like it. Don't get me wrong. I don't know if it's the top 100 stories ever told. 
Um, I think it's in the top 100 film stories ever told. I think I think it could be said for that. Because there's so many Disney movies that take over Snow White, though, like Beauty and the Beast. You mentioned. I know Beauty and the Beast is to me gold standard. You know, it's very hard to argue with the near. Prof- I mean, listen to our episode about Beauty and the Beast. We'll post it in our show notes, and we won't talk about it now because we're talking about Ms. White, mm-hmm. Miss um, White. Sorry, at this. Well, no, she's married now to a man. She. <laughs> randomly got kissed by after she was in a coffin. So Mrs. Complex. Mrs. Charming? I don't know. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how things work back then. But the the idea behind doing Snow White and doing this, a lot of the impetus behind it was for Walt Disney saw this as an opportunity to have fun with the seven dwarfs. And their possibilities for, quote, screwiness and, quote, gags. So Which is what cartoons were about at the time. Exactly. So he's like, look at this fairy tale. It has a story that we can tell for a long time. And we could have screwiness and gags and do a lot of silly things. And in a lot of ways, what Disney had been doing in terms of their silly symphonies not Merry Melodies, but their Silly Symphonies, um, had been experimenting with getting their animators better to be able to take on this particular feature. So doing things like the Goddess of Spring, where they did the Persephone myth, which is Mm. interesting. And they try to get a realistic-looking woman. They tried. They tried. Um, She still had really olive oil, rubbery hose arms. So not the anatomy wasn't quite there, but it's still really beautiful. It just wasn't quite right. And, but there's a lot of experimentation that they were doing to get this. And they pushed the technology to develop the multiplane camera. Yeah. Which they still used to a certain effect in terms of look. In Beauty and the Beast. The two movies begin very similarly with like the in the forest zoom towards the castle with like the trees moving on different planes. Exactly. And when I saw, when I rewatched this, because I've seen Snow White, I want to say at least six times prior to this. Um, But watching it again, that's the first thing that struck me was this opening shot was like, oh, that's how Beauty and the Beast started. (laughs) Yes. That's that's where Beauty and the Beast stole it from. They were trying to, they're hearkening back to the subconscious understanding of how Snow White opens. So, but but a lot of it, the idea originally was this is a showcase for silliness, and these seven dwarfs can be silly. And the story was originally going to start with Snow White meeting the dwarfs and coming to their cottage. And that's where the story begins, which thinking back to it, it's like, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) Well, if your goal is screwiness and gags, like that's the place to begin. I think what they got into was the goal is to tell a complete story. Cause I like how you mentioned the, the original idea was about the dwarfs. Um, but there's a Walt Disney quote that I pulled at some point of uh, wanting to focus on the story. And he talks about, he was telling the animators to quit fooling around with individual drawings and focus on the whole thing. So at some point he himself went from like, okay, here's these moments to like, let's look at the whole story across this whole movie. Mm-hmm. And I think when he's building things, the, the idea, uh, the, the thing about Snow White in terms of his story creation was Walt Disney was instrumental in how it was going to play out. He told the story from, from start to finish to all the animators and said, and essentially acted it out. It'd be like, you know, calling your friends over for dinner and going, let me tell you this movie idea that I have. And then your friends sitting there patiently while you 
perform it for them in a one-person show, doing voices, talking about story moments, and doing that. And that's what convinced the, everyone on the studio to say, yes, let's, let's do this, let's get behind it, let's go. And then it went from that to become different treatments and different outlines. And, and back then, there weren't really... In the 30s, screenplays were different from the way we have screenplays now. They were very much, here are sequences that we want to write. And I think they talked about this recently in the podcast Script Notes, which we, I'll put a, put a link, uh, to. link to in terms of how screenplays were differing because of the way that they told stories back then. Well, it's a lot like pre-Shakespeare, too. They just kind of like pin up the general string of things backstage. Like, we have to hit all these story points, go and improv the rest. Exactly. And then Shakespeare came along and was like, what if we wrote everything? <laughs> what? <laughs> You're crazy, Will. I don't like this in your newfangled form of telling a story. By actually telling it. <laughs> and I, I'm giving him too much credit. There were writers before him. This is true, but, you know. And I, the same is with Disney. You know, there were other people doing things, but um, I think a lot of this comes from, again, starting to do something the way you usually do something and then knowing that you have to now change it fundamentally from the way that you normally do it. So the way that you create and craft a animated short back in the 30s and how you create an a full-length film are two separate things. And he gave them, <laughs> I love this one thing where they talk about how Walt was giving them a raise for every gag that they could come up with. Not like a raise, <laughs> but like a, a bonus. It's like a bounty. Right. So every gag that you got that stayed in the movie, he would pay like five bucks for every good joke that everyone came up with. So he was cultivating everyone coming up for one-upping and one-upping and essentially just jazzing things up with more and more gags. One of the most famous ones are when the dwarfs come home and find Snow White in their bed and they slowly look over the bed and their noses pop out one at a time. Mm -hmm. That was a gag that got somebody five bucks. It's like commission-based sales, but for writing. Exactly, which I found really interesting. Like, you guys come up with gags, come up with more gags. And I guess they were running out and just needed more and more. But when you think of it that way, when you think of how they crafted it to begin with or where they started, looking at the final film, it's hard to believe that that's where they were focusing. It's really hard to look at that and say, Oh, let's start it with a silly, screwy comedy full of gag a, you know, gag a second, not even gag a minute, but a, a gag a second fun family film about these silly, silly men and this beautiful woman. I do believe that, though, and here's why. Because where I think Snow White kind of drags by modern standards is its pacing. Sure. And... What they try to do with the film is like in each scene, it's like, okay, here's the goal where the point of this scene is everyone's going to sleep and they don't exhaust or they exhaust every single possibility to like tell a story or a moment or a gag about the scene fitting the mood of sleep. So like the, the little animals go to sleep and the dwarves go to sleep and they fight over the pillow and Snow White goes to sleep. It's like everything possibly imaginable has to happen along the lines of sleep or then everything imagine has to happen of trying to stop snow white from eating this apple like anything you could think of it's not like a three three classical structure joke limit it's like let's do everything we can that is true so it all goes towards the ultimate goal of the scene so nothing is like superfluous in that sense but it it's a lot there's no limit so when you think a period's been put on it there's another period there's another period, there's another period, there's another period. Yeah. 
And that's it, why I feel it it feels like it drags by modern standards. Yes, and the pacing is quite different, and the tone is different too. Um, and this it goes from really creepy, really scary, really um, really dark very quickly to goofy and silly and then back to dark again. <laughs> and it, and it's really, I don't want to say it's jarring, but it's striking. You notice the tonal shifts. You yes. notice them. Be, and it does feel, if not episodic, it does feel a little piecemeal in terms well, of this happens, this happens, this happens. Another Walt quote yes. to put in there. Walt Disney says, I'm sorry, Walt, because we're on a first name basis. Yes. Uh, For every laugh, there must be a tear somewhere. I believe that. (laughs) And this movie is like 50-50, like gags and then like scary or emotional moments. It's like laughter is one half the movie and then all the other emotions are the other half. So if if joy was, if this was inside out, it'd be (laughs) joy for half of the movie and then everyone else would be peppered in. Oh, you mean like what in the Inside Out was? Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> not a criticism of Inside Out. I like Inside Out a lot. Inside Out made me cry, and it's pro- quite possibly my favorite Pixar movie. So I, I, I would agree with that. That it's my favorite Pixar movie? It's my favorite, too. Oh, okay. I was like, you would agree yeah, with me that it's my favorite? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that if we if we go through it, I, I like talking about the development of this because knowing what the the story folks were going through as they were trying to create this, it just it, it just tells one thing. It just makes it more impossible, I think, to get a final film the way they they were doing it. Um, also, this does have to be said. In that day, in 1937. Nobody in the studio with any kind of story power or any kind of artistic power to make any artistic choices was a woman. Yes. This is a movie made by all men, essentially. Yes, there were women in the sound department, some. There were women in the ink and paint department, but what they were doing was essentially painting by numbers the work of the men. I so yeah. Snow White's depiction in in terms of the ideas of beauty, the ideas of what makes someone beautiful and their love and all these stories about a young girl growing up. It has to be said that a lot of what is being said about that is done by being a holy male, not holy, but holy. With a W. With a W. Holy. Holy male construct. Yes, it is men telling a female story. It's kind of like if you tried to have all men craft a healthcare bill that was supposed to encompass the entire nation. Like, what would that look like? That's right. I wow. Went there. Wow. On on our animation <laughs> podcast, you went, I'm glad. We did a whole Donald Trump episode like five episodes ago. Come on. Anyway. Let's... Yes. So yes, the your your story criticisms and point, like the the filter's there. We've said it. We won't acknowledge most of it for the rest of this podcast because we've said our our piece of like this is flawed. It it is massively flawed, and that is one reason why it is flawed. And the first word in the Disney animated canon is slave, just saying. <laughs> slave mirror on the wall. It's like, whoa, okay. Forgot that that was a thing. <laughs> the first spoken word, yes. In the animated part. <laughs> yes, you're right. They, they, what's interesting about the way that the, the film begins, and I forgot that it began this way, is before the story, there is a quote from Walt Disney thanking mm-hmm. all the artists who worked on it. 
So it's really interesting to see a personal filmmaker put a statement right before the film. Like, my sincere gratitude. I think that, like, based on what we've talked about of trying to get this movie made, like, it makes sense why it's there. Like, this was a monumental effort. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew what they were getting into. And they all thought the studio was going to fail because of it. Right. And they wound up building the Disney empire off of this, at least until they lost all the money again. Right. Which, (laughs) part two of our (laughs) recurring nightmare. Um, <laughs> for your ears, yes. as we said. Um, so as as it starts there, we have the thank you from Walt Disney. We have the book, a live action book that opens of its own accord, which mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. It opens, and then we are able to read about, and and it uses large words, which I was impressed by. You know. Snow White being a scullery maid and <laughs> just just the language that's used is really interesting. It, it was striking to me. And then because I read it out loud to Jack, my, my, my four-year-old, almost five-year-old, I read it out loud and was like, huh, I'll have to explain what a scullery maid is to, <laughs> to my child. <laughs> he didn't ask, but I was like, do I have to? I, I had to pause it too because I was thinking, having... <laughs> The movie had gone on, and I was like, oh, I didn't finish reading because I was like, how do I explain a scullery made to him? Like, honestly, the background of Snow White is the most important part of the movie. It still kind of confuses me. Like, okay, so she was a princess, and she knows that she's a princess, but she was made of maids so that could hide her beauty, and then she got too beautiful. Like, uh. Yeah, there's a lot of backstory that's there, but I guess they hit all the main points that you need to know, which are the queen is vain. She wants to be beautiful, the most beautiful. She thinks that Snow White might someday be more beautiful. So she dresses her down in rags and keeps her as a servant to hide her beauty. And that's about all you need to know about the... And as she's known in Disney lore, the evil queen. She doesn't get a name, but she's the evil queen. So much so that her daughter in the Disney film descendants is named Evie. <laughs> Not the Pokemon. Not the Pokemon. So question is the evil queen. Is that Snow White's stepmother? Yes. Okay. That kind of confused me. Yes. They left out that part. <laughs> Not her mother. This is a queen. This is a princess, but they're not related. <laughs> not related by blood. Yeah. But they're related by Where's the king in this picture? He's like, yeah, okay, make my daughter a maid. He has to be dead, right? Does he? Well, uh, maybe for, it's just a deadbeat dad, a deadbeat king. A deadbeat king. Where, yeah, the king's going to leave the castle and let someone be in charge. Wow. He's, he's dead. He has to be dead. He's then, literally not in the picture, though. <laughs> he's not. He's nowhere to be found. And I think. Uh, I mean, it's powerful because right away you get immediate juxtaposition. The artists and the storytelling puts two people who are diametrically opposed, foes. They are just, (laughs) they are mirror images of each Uh, other. Yeah. So, but they are. So they're right away showing us that evil queen is beautiful, but vile in her heart. And Snow White is just all around good in everything. And everything. And But she doesn't know it yet. She doesn't know that she's beautiful. She's beautiful and she doesn't know it. I know, which is like the worst. <laughs> we all knew Snow White in high school. We all hated her. So, well, well, no, I mean, like, that's the worst thing you could do in a movie. Like, she's beautiful, but she doesn't know it. Like, like for as, as writers to put that in your script, you just want to punch the writer. It's like, why did you, why is that even important? Just, she's, she's just a character. Just describe how, what she's doing. How does someone not know that's beautiful? I feel like it's so hard to not know. People tell you all the time. 
Now, I guess this is abuse that maybe the queen tells her that she's not beautiful. I can't, I don't know. I do like how the queen is like an old silent movie Hollywood actress, like off a of film, and then Snow White's an old Hollywood actress on film. <laughs> the queen is like the eyes and like the tell me, Miara. And Snow White is like doing the German expressionism, like, oh, 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 silent film, like arms and face and big movement. <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> I never really thought of it that way, but yes. <laughs> Good point. Snow White looks like she's in the, uh, she's, she's in a silent film, except it's in color and she's talking. <laughs> That's true. That's totally true. And a lot of her gestures, you could see where Amy Adams got her physicalization for the film Enchanted. Yes. By watching Snow White, like her hands and everything. It's like, oh, Amy Adams just, you know, she swallowed the pill to it to take on Snow White. Like that's what she did. She's there. She has everything. And the one thing about Snow White, I mean, a lot of, She's given a lot of guff for her voice and her childlike voice, but she's meant to be like 14, 16. That's what heroines in movies sounded like at the time, too. And that. But she's but she's also a very sincere character. Yeah. And for as what's the for as regressive as she is as a female lead, she does have a lot of powerful moments in terms of being in charge of seven men. Yeah, they. she's the boss. She's not bossy. She's the boss. That's right. Thank you, Chris <laughs> Nee. Yet again, <laughs> she's not bossy. She's the boss. She totally mm-hmm. just takes charge of this household. Yeah, she's like, y'all are a mess. I'm going to get you an order, and maybe you'll let me stay here. Okay, thank you. None of you are going to eat until you wash your dirty hands. And then 20 she minutes sh- later... <laughs> and she shames them just in front of each other. Like, oh. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they all think they can away with it, too. That's the best part. It's like, okay, one of you didn't go with having clean hands. So the next six of you think you can? <laughs> oh, bashful. <laughs> I'm disappointed in you most of all. Because <laughs> you'll be most ashamed. She's manipulative. <laughs> And then they all march through, and yes, like an eight-minute sequence follows of them washing in the tub. And there's a song. Yeah. Whatever, but they're all sound the same to me. <laughs> Come up to the tub. It, it's a, it has a really hilarious lyric, though. So dunk your hands in the water, rub to your face, and go... <laughs> it's a silly song. Like, that on its own has been extracised excised it's been (laughs) excised from the film and put on when they were doing a lot of animated shorts they did things like hey the silly adventures of the dwarves i remember seeing that segment on its own like hey Mm -hmm. remember when snow white cooked for them and they had to wash up let's watch just that part It's like YouTube. Disney invented YouTube before there was YouTube. It essentially did. Back in the 80s, I remember they were just like showing pieces. Remember when this happened? They they did that a lot for things that were out of context. Just like, hey, you remember this part? That was funny. Let's watch it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you brought up Silly Symphonies earlier because having learned so much more about the history of Disney in our Mickey episode, like so much (laughs) of this movie is set to music. Yes. And it's not just songs, um, but also just the movements and the choreography and the moments are all musical. And it's what it's watching an orchest- orchestral. I don't want to try to say it. it's watching like a symphony, not a silly one, maybe like half silly, half serious symphony. <laughs> serious symphony doesn't like trip off the tongue as much as silly symphony. <laughs> it's a serious symphony. <laughs> it's like serious Stephen. Um, yeah so is that but then also I was admiring how much of this movie feels like a modern musical but I'm pretty sure Oklahoma came after this didn't it that's not a musical history person 
That is a good question. It's not a history, per, musical history person. Musical, yes. Musical um, theater history. I'm looking it up right now. No, I'll, Oklahoma I'll get there. Like, it's regarded as like the, the first modern musical with like, as we know it today, before that there were like plays that had music and songs and singing, but they were like light operas. Oklahoma, 1943. No, sorry. Mm, 1931 play. But 1943 is when it opened on Broadway. As a musical. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm wondering like how much of Snow White influenced musicals as we know them. Now they did have movie musicals. Those were a thing. So I think before Snow White? I thought so. But I, I this is not one thing that we were um I mean it was Snow White's before Wizard of Oz. Oh, I'm what I'm looking at this right now. Yeah, it's there's a Wikipedia page of lists of musical films by year. 1923, one of them. 1926, one of them. 1927, one of them. 1928, two of them. 1929, 50 of them. <laughs> yes. So movie musicals. And they were, a lot of them were more musical reviews than anything. But yeah. it wasn't until later on that we ended up something where the songs expressed something emotionally through the story. And I would venture to even say that even Oklahoma doesn't do that. So I'm probably going to get tarred and feathered feathered for saying that. But (laughs) I think something about Disney, when you look at Snow White and the way what you were talking about in terms of music and putting image to music, it makes Fantasia inevitable because mm-hmm. that's what they were always doing. With Fantasia, all they were doing was expressing that further and experimenting with it and telling you what they were doing. They were being very upfront about it. Snow White, Snow White was, they weren't revealing their technique. They were, they were just using it and trying to get the best product out there. Yeah. And it, it, it works like, yeah, if you suspend your, not even disbelief, if you suspend your notions of what a movie should be in the modern context and our formulaic world, like you can enjoy this and it's pacing and it's music as is. Yes. And it is an enjoyable thing. And a lot of it has to do with, for me, the artwork. I just, mm-hmm. it's, it's stunning. Almost every shot and people say this a lot about different things, but this is honestly true. Almost every shot you can put on your wall yeah. and have it be a work of art. It, it every cell, every every background, the backgrounds are rich and lush and beautiful, and they feel like a storybook, but they also feel expressive. Well, with art, like let's. So I. Was as I was watching this, I made a running list of things that would have blown audiences' minds where I had to step back and go like, okay, this is something I'm used to now, but this is probably the first time anyone's ever seen something this cool and advanced. Yes. And there's a lot of things like that in this movie. A couple of them we've mentioned, the depth effect for the pan and zoom in the film where you have different layers. Um, It's in color. Uh, The book that's live action that opens on its own at the beginning the water ripples in the well as Snow White is looking down. Oh, that that struck me too. Yeah, it's water is always a theme for technology. Um, the branches <laughs> when Snow White's having her night form as they seamlessly transfer transform into hands as she's running through the woods. You're like, oh, okay, this animation can transform seamlessly like that instead of like this weird like Wolfman fade. Um, the light parting through the shrubbery when Snow White sees the cabin for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's gorgeous. Um, dust and dirt with the transparency effect of seeing Snow White through a dirty window. The sheer amount of simultaneous things happening when like the cleaning begins of like that's a lot of animals doing a lot of things on one shot. Yes, there's and it's everywhere. There's everything is moving. Yeah. Everything is in motion. Uh, when they first introduce the dwarfs and they're in the mine, there's all that sparkling. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something you couldn't really do in black and white before. That's a cool, like, we're not just in color, but we're showing you, like, why color. <laughs> um, 
when the dwarves are watching, washing their hands and they go to the tub outside and then Doc stirs the water and the reflections all get completely distorted and watercolory, completely seamlessly. Like that is a lot of hand drawn, hand animated effort, like a lot because mm-hmm. it goes from lines to watercolor without you noticing it. If you're not paying attention and you miss it, you won't appreciate it, but it's such a cool moment. But it's it's done so artfully that you're not supposed to notice it. That's yeah. the hard part about all effects animation is supposed to be done so that way you don't even think about it. So I think effects animators are some of like the the unsung heroes because their work you only think about it when it doesn't work. Yeah. Like to cite a recent example, we mentioned a couple times this episode, the water Moana looks really cool. If you're just seeing Moana as a bystander, you're like, oh yeah, I guess the water is cool. I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> they did well there. Um, also something that hit me was, and you mentioned earlier, like the, the posture and how people walked and moved. Mm-hmm. Once the evil queen turns into the old witch, and she has that realistic old lady hobble, like out of her dungeon. Yes. I was like, that is really realistic. I know, I know people who walk like that. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, it's the timing. And one thing about their process, when they had done, they did live action footage of the Snow White and the Prince and the Queen as reference. So everything that was done on on screen was actually filmed in live action. Now, a lot of, I would say most of the animators disapproved of doing any rotoscoping, which is where you essentially just trace over the live action. Um, so none of the queen was rotoscoped, but I, but I did read somewhere that the prince, some of the footage of the prince was traced on live action. So it was actually rotoscoped, which may have been for time or ease or lots of different things. There were a lot of variables in the production. But looking at the queen, you can see that they're referencing something. Because you can't animate like that without having some kind of reference. I'm not saying that it has to be an, an external, but it's coming from something physical, it feels so real that you know that they are looking at something and referencing that. Mm-hmm. You just can't not be. any. Most of her movements, especially with her cape and her reactions and her thinking and the choices that the queen makes, you can feel that there's a physical body there. Yeah. So. It's, it shows and like they improve upon the physicality of it, too. Yes. I think you can see why they don't like rotoscoping if they did that for the prince, because I think he moves the stiffest even compared to the huntsman. Yes. Yes. But you can take the reference and build on that with the queen and the witch and Snow White. And I'm sure Walt Disney is the dwarfs. Mm-hmm. Well, they did have, and I've seen video, and if you're able to see any of the featurettes on the making of it, you can see the gentleman uh, who did the voice for Happy doing the dance that Happy does when all the dwarfs are celebrating. You can see footage of him dancing and then how it was put on into the body of the dwarf. Um, There's also great artwork of, oh my gosh, concept artwork um, that you can find on Andreas Deja's website that we found that we'll post in our show notes about just, he just constantly explores different things. And it just so happened as we were about to talk about Snow White, he posted this link to the final fight or the final hunt for the witch after when the dwarfs realize that Snow White's been poisoned and they go after her, which is a striking sequence. I think it's the one place where it feels like a modern film. Yeah. It has that kind of frantic pacing, but you can, I mean, like we kind of talked about last week in Spider-Man, it's a kind of choreography where you can keep track of the action too. Yes. So you feel like emotional, but you know what's going on. It's it's clear. There's a good like director's hand pointing at where you're supposed to look as an audience. Mm-hmm. You get the 
the frenetic pace of the dwarfs rushing home on top of animals and a couple of funny gags on that where some are falling off and some are going off and some are bouncing and then cutting back to Snow White about to eat the apple and the apple getting closer and closer. And then you see the bite and then you hear her fall and then you see the hand and the apple drop, which is such a good scene. Because you're, you're getting it all from the queen's reaction. And it's you just see that anticipation of, come on, just do, just die already. Just mm-hmm. die. Although she knows she's not going to die because she found out the caveat, the one thing that can save her is a kiss. True love's yeah. first kiss. I guess it's a fairy tale, so I can't have like too many dramaturgical issues. But like, why have a sleeping poison apple instead of just like a poison poison apple? Well, she didn't have that in her book. You just go get some arsenic and sprinkle it on the like a caramel apple. Well, she was like, you know, I spent all this time. I got all this liquid together for this, <laughs> and I'll just have to go add something else. The apple's already made. It's in it's in the basket. I, I look like a hag. I'm I'm already ready to go out the door. That's just an extra stop to to get poison. I got I ha- a lot of liquid to unload. I got this plan. It's already in motion. I just I, I'm just gonna go. And they're gonna she thinks, and this is interesting, she thinks that they're gonna bury her alive. <laughs> and that brings her joy that she'll be buried alive. And just, and maybe that'll kill her. It's very dark. I mean, to be fair, the you'd think that they would bury her alive because they think that she's dead. But instead, they put her in a glass coffin in the middle of the woods for some unknown amount of time where all the animals and dwarfs can go look at her every day. She is just that beautiful. She is so beautiful, we can't see fit to bury her. Hmm. Like Eva Peron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, um, hang on, it'll come to me. Not Putin, the other one. <laughs> Not Putin, the other one. <laughs> Are you talking about Lenin? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it ends in in. And- it was Russia. It was a Goodness. Russian leader thing. He was like formaldehyded and put on display. So it's essentially that, except Lenin is just waiting for love's true kiss to come <laughs> and wake him up. <laughs> oh, someday, Lenin. <gasps> Communism. It happened. Goodness, uh, where are, speaking of Russians, can we talk a little bit about German Expressionism? Sure, what do you have to say about German Expressionism? I don't have they, much more to say. They, they used it in this film. <laughs> Done. Done. <Okay. laughs> and I think, I think the, it's something where it's striking in this film because they used it for emotional effect. They, they went back and, yes, they chose visually to express, and this, this sounds so basic, but they matched the artistic expression with the emotion, expression of emotions. And I know that sounds basic, but they were using things from film itself and art mm-hmm. to try to tell their story. And which is why it's not simply the fact that they made a movie that was drawn. They thought through each piece of art. This is a work of moving art. Well, you can totally teach a film class off of this picture because they use lots of things that we recognize today. as like common and I mean, in a good way, basic film techniques. At one point, you're, you as an audience feel like you're 
watching Snow White about to take a bite of the apple from the animal's perspective because you're watching Snow White the Witch through a window frame within the frame of the TV that you're watching it through. And that's just the framing effect to put focus on that. And you feel like you're a spectator outside and lo and behold, the animals are outside framing effect. Boom. It's in snow white. Um, perfect. Like Alfred Hitchcock, dramatic tension is snow white, like gathering the flowers and she finds a bluebird and then her back is turned to goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye now. And the huntsman is coming up with a knife, like about to stab her. Like that's perfect. Dramatic tension. Mm hmm. And his eyes too. Oh Yeah. The Huntsman's eyes is just—he looks like an actor from that period. Yes, he, I'm not saying a specific actor. I'm just saying he looks like a 1930s actor in the way that he's moving and the way that he looks in the way that he's going towards. It looks like 1930s film, like which is, it, yes, it was a 1930s film, but it was drawn. It mm-hmm. was. It was drawn. Yeah, it's not like this is stiff animation. It's completely realistic animation for the kind of visual storytelling they had at the time. And and it's remarkable for that reason. It's it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, definitely the more I watch this, the more I appreciate this movie. I still don't know if it's like one of my favorite stories or movies, but I certainly I own it now and I'm happy to own it. Yeah, and I think for me it was it's always important to see where things began and it's nice to see that in snow white you don't just get a story on its own you get to see ideas and the seeds that start blossoming into everything else Mm -hmm. so from snow white um, immediately audiences wanted more from walt disney And he very easily could have capitalized on Snow White and done a sequel. People wanted more dwarfs. There were plans for a sequel. There were. But he went and he, they did Pinocchio, which, as we start our talk through the Disney canon, we won't go through every single film, but if we're looking at the beginnings of things, Pinocchio took what Snow White accomplished and pushed things further. Like it, it goes beyond Snow White in so many ways. If you put them side by side, Pinocchio is a better film in terms of flow and construct. It still has some of the same issues. Yeah. Um, and its story is a little bit confusing. <laughs> yeah. a, a lo- I was going to say, or a lot of bit confusing. <laughs> But the characters and the acting, the performances, the finale, the monstro scene alone Mm -hmm. is the water in the monstro scene of Pinocchio. It's they took what little they did. If if you look at water in Snow White was impressive because it looked like drips in the well. And then you look at water in Pinocchio. It's like. They just completely upped the ante. They didn't stop. They went for the next thing. Yeah. And as we talk about our next episode of Canon and D. Isney, uh, <laughs> whenever that is, um, there's kind of this, this string of hits right away of like Snow White and then Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. You're like, oh, I know all of those. Off the top, like those are famous films. They're all in a row. How interesting! And then you get like Saludos Amigos. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, Saludos Amigos, Three Caballeros. Then you get Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free. You noticeably skipped over Song of the South. <laughs> Song of the South does not count when we talk about full-length animated series, animated okay. features. It doesn't. It's not. It's not counted in the list. <laughs> okay. In the official list, it does not count. I don't know if it did at some point, but I don't think it did because they're going solely animated films. Although Fun and Fancy Free does break that because there's (laughs) some live action in there. But it's more animation. It's more animation, but you get some weird live action that Jack was confused by when we watched it. So they become more like compilation films when they didn't have any budget 
And then they get back to trying to save the studio. Yeah, you have like these these heavy hitters right away, the 30s, early 40s, and then there's this big jump until I would say Cinderella, 1950, then they get like a string you're, of hits again. Well, you're exactly right. Well, I don't know what could have happened in like the mid 40s that would have caused like filmmaking or troubles to like have trouble with budgets. Like, I don't know, like. Yeah, suddenly everyone was against German expressionism for some reason. Don't let Germans express themselves. Why? I just, I just don't I don't get it. There was something going on. It may have been, I don't know, but it, it felt like something in the larger zeitgeist to use the a, German word. You can't say that. Oh, I can't say that. Um, <laughs> 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 yes, but that's. I think that's the period that we start to see that Disney's success is not based solely on a product that Disney creates. The larger world starts to have its problems and that infect the Disney studio and their money, their income and what they're able to generate and create. And then it comes back and then Walt dies and Confusion. Now it's like part three and part four. That's what I'm saying. So that you can see these these waves going on. So Snow White started the first wave that, as you were saying, Mackenzie, and I totally agree with, ends with Bambi. So if you want to see this first chunk of the Disney canon, and they're they're five very different films, like Fantasia versus Dumbo, are like very different films, but. The first five represent, I don't want to say Disney at its best, but it's the purest form of all the pieces of the Disney mechanism. So yeah. if, if you look at Dumbo, you're getting... All, Dumbo is sugar and heart. That's what Dumbo is. It's pure sugar and heart and it's Jack's favorite movie. Hmm. He loves Dumbo. He loves everything about it, especially the train in Dumbo. But <laughs> he he was talking about how they're going to change. He's visiting his grandparents, and he was talking about how they're going to change the little golf cart into Casey Jr. <laughs> he, he's obsessed. He loves Casey Jr. from Dumbo, but... And that was today. So like, that's, he was discussing that today. But it's you get you get to see a lot of Disney principles and ideals in those first five films, expressed in five very different ways, but all working towards the same end, which is making you feel something. Usually, that's making you laugh but also trying to see if you could actually feel something for a character that is drawn versus an actual human being. So. Check. Experiment proven. Experiment proven. And I'm, I'm glad that we are still reaping the benefits of that very first folly. Uh. That, so I'm still glad... I'm so glad that we're where we are now. I'm glad that we're far away from that. <laughs> and I'm also glad that we still have that to go back to as a foundation. But I'm also glad that we have it as something to work against and towards something transformative. Yeah. Like Frozen would not exist if it weren't for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Moana, or Toy, Story. or Toy Story, or Moana, you know, the later ones would not exist if it weren't for that first step into the unknown. Just in summary, all of history is terrible. I'm glad things are better now. <laughs> Relatively, yes. <laughs> Relatively, yes. in some Rel ways. Yes. In some very, very important ways, yes. Chris, do you have a favorite thing about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? 
I think for me, my favorite thing this time watching it, I'll say it this way. So my favorite thing this time watching it was just the final chase of the witch. It struck me more than it had previously. I felt my heart beating a little faster. It was probably because I was watching it with Jack and he stood up on the couch and I could feel his worry. And so it affected me and I was realizing just how intense that scene actually is. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite thing this time watching it. How about for you? Um, I talked about the Huntsman scene already. I like the Huntsman scene a lot with the dramatic tension. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I think. That it, it is a perfect moment in this film. Yes, I agree. Ah, so that's our first venture into canon in D. Canon in D is me. Canon Disney. Disney. Part one. So should we talk about what we're talking about next time? Absolutely. For your homework, we are working up towards watching something. (laughs) What did you guess? That we may or may not be ready for. So in order to get us in a particular mode, um, we are going to investigate two shows that did parodies of the film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. One is Futurama, season one, episode 13, Fry and the Slurm Factory. And the second is from you, Mackenzie. Uh, Dexter's Laboratory, season two, episode 22, and it's the second half of that episode, Golden Diskette. So looking at Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory parodies, why are these parodies happening? Why is that something that everybody has to do a parody of? Why is that a parody necessary or good or tolerable in society? (laughs) So that is your homework for next time. As always, we want to say thank you to Nigel Coutinho, our engineer, and also to Jacob Reed for our theme music. If you have um, follow-up questions or thoughts on today's episode, you can tweet at us on Twitter, at WGAnimated, or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WGAnimated. And you can find all of our show notes and links and the list of, like, seven of our past podcast episodes we did linked off in our <laughs> uh, writersgetanimated.tumblr.com Wonderful. I am again left with like no no wrap-up thought. I have no wrap-up thought. I don't have a wrap-up thought. Yeah, that's, that's I, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to Whistle while I podcast. I guess it's hard to do. Can I talk and whistle at the same time? <laughs> yeah, that is one thing you cannot do is whistle while you podcast. Good night, everybody. Sleepy, happy, grumpy, dopey, sneezy, bashful, doc.